0: Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I invite you to open your copy of God's Word. And let's turn again to Luke chapter 9. We've been in Luke 9 now for several weeks, and we're making our way verse by verse through the entire Gospel of Luke. We come today to an episode in the public ministry of the Lord Jesus, known popularly as the Great Confession. The Great Confession follows closely on the heels of a great miracle by Jesus. In fact, numerically, the miracle we looked at last week was the greatest of Jesus' many miracles, the feeding of the 5,000. Last Sunday morning we also examined the concept of God's common grace. And we define common grace as the blessings that God grants to all humanity regardless of their belief or lack thereof. We're talking about things like life, health, food, family, pleasure. Now, I believe I quoted James 1.17 which says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Tim Keller is pastor in New York City, and he commented on James 1.17 this way. He said, this means that no matter who performs it, every act of goodness, wisdom, justice, and beauty is empowered by God. Because God gives out gifts of wisdom, talent, beauty, and skill graciously, that is completely unmerited. He casts them across all humanity, regardless of religious conviction, race, gender, or any other attribute to enrich brighten and preserve the world." God's common grace is designed to enrich, brighten, and preserve the world. And yet, we know experientially and historically, man has not responded to God's graciousness in kind. In fact, just the opposite, every man is born a rebel against God. And so that, we said, leads to our need for God's special grace. This special grace that the Bible speaks of, is for only those who will repent and put their faith in Christ. We call those people God's elect. But common grace affects primarily the physical. God's special grace is the work of the Holy Spirit, whereby He calls and regenerates, sanctifies, and ultimately brings to glory a lost sinner. But Jesus did not come to this earth primarily to relieve human suffering, though He did that while He was here. He did not come primarily to speak against injustice, though he did that while he was here. Jesus said his mission was to seek and to save the lost. And he was speaking of that forgiveness made possible through his atoning work on the cross and through ultimately his glorious resurrection. And when we studied through another of the Gospels a few years ago, the Gospel of John, we saw that as soon as Jesus fed the 5,000, he began to teach some difficult things. And because of those difficult things he taught, many of those people, in fact, most of the people who claimed to be followers or disciples of Jesus, turned away. They stopped following him at that point and they went back to their respective homes. And so from that point on, he turned his attention primarily to his inner circle of disciples. We know them as, as the apostles. And it was in a conversation with those apostles that we find our text today Luke chapter 9, verse 18. And it happened that while he was praying alone the disciples were with him. And he questioned them saying, who do the people say that I am? They answered and said John the Baptist and others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading and hearing of His Word. That is the great confession. It was voiced by Peter, but it speaks for all true believers today. The answer to the question, who is Jesus, is He is the Christ. He is God's Messiah. Now, what was the setting of this episode? You remember that Jesus had been ministering in and around the Sea of Galilee. We've noted that there were over... 200 villages around the Sea of Galilee. It was a very densely populated area. And it was in a topographical bowl. It was below sea level. And so those snows that melted in the spring up on Mount Hermon would uh, find their way into tributaries and finally came together in what we know as the Jordan River. And the Jordan River empties into the Sea of Galilee. It's just a bowl that fills up. And once the bowl is full of water, It goes out the other side and continues south until it empties finally in what we call the Dead Sea. And and the Scripture tells us, because this story is found also in the book of Matthew, that Jesus and His disciples left Galilee and traveled 25 miles north to a region called Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi was a land that was inhabited by both Jews and Gentiles, but it had been controlled for many years by the Gentiles, that's why it has a, a Gentile name. Caesarea Philippi, if you wrote that on a piece of paper you would see very quickly that it is named for Caesar. Specifically Caesar Augustus that is mentioned in the New Testament. Remember I said that Herod the Great upon his death had his kingdom divided into quarters. And one of his sons Herod Antipas ruled the region called Judea. He's called Herod the Tetrarch. One of Herod the Tetrarch's brothers was named Philip and he was ruling this region up north that Jesus' and the disciples are in, Caesarea Philippi, he was called Philip the Tetrarch. And Philip was a good politician. And so he renamed his territory after the man that was his boss, which was Caesar Augustus. He called it Caesarea Philippi. He named it for his two favorite people, the Emperor and himself. And uh, he was wise to put the Emperor's name first, I think. It, But this was a region that was uh, connected to mythology. In fact it was a belief that in one of these caves, by the way this is present day Syria up in the highlands, uh, was where the Greek god Pan originated from. In fact the, the area was originally named for the Greek god Pan. But Jesus apparently uses this 25 mile journey by foot to teach His disciples. And we find Him doing what He often did, praying. I find it's interesting the wording of Luke here. Jesus was praying alone while He was with the Apostles. It is possible to be alone even in a group of people. Jesus was alone with the Father as the apostles were talking, perhaps eating, mingling about. He was praying. And so after he finished praying apparently he came over and uh, he asked a question uh, to these disciples. He said, who do the crowds say that I am? Now I take from that the crowds are the people, the thousands of people who were following around the same group of people that he had fed just days earlier. uh, Could have been as many as tens of thousands of people who are following him from village to village at this point. Maybe he even points at some of them and say, who do these people say that I am? Well, Peter of course was the spokesman for the apostles. He's been called the uh, apostolic choir director, if you will. He's representative of, of all of them. And it sounds at first blush that Jesus is fishing for a compliment. Because he certainly knows what people are saying about him. They're saying it to his face. But he asked the disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? By the way, be careful fishing for compliments. I heard about a preacher one time who uh, thought he preached an exceptionally good sermon one Sunday. And he got in the car with his family, headed back home to eat lunch. And his wife had been silent all the way home. And so finally he looks over and said, honey, how many truly great preachers do you think there are today? And she said, one less than you do. (laughs) But uh, Jesus was not fishing for a compliment here. Remember Jesus taught with the Socratic method by questioning them to get them to talk and get them to think. And so he asked the question, who do men say that I am? Who does the crowd say that I am? Now it seems that everyone who was aware of Jesus' ministry had an opinion about him. The Bible lists many of them. For example, the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees were the religious leaders in the Jewish faith. What did they think about Jesus? They observed his miracles. They saw him heal the sick and cast out demons. Well, Matthew 14 tells us when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man cast out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And so, if you ask a Pharisee who is Jesus, they say, He's a messenger of Satan. Well, what about Jesus' own family? Well, Mark 3.21 tells us what they thought, at least at first. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he's lost his senses. So, the Pharisees think Jesus has a demon, and his own family think he's crazy. But the popular opinion, that is among the masses, was that they loved Jesus. They thought he was great. Why wouldn't they? He was giving them free food, healing their sickness. He was very popular, at least for a time. But even among those who had a favorable opinion of Jesus, they had differing opinions of who He was. And so the disciples, Peter, begins to list some of those things people are saying. He says, well some are saying you are John the Baptist. Now, of course there was no social media in those days, there was no photography. But the people certainly had become aware by this time that John the Baptist was dead. Herod Antipas had beheaded him of course and What they were saying is this is John the Baptist reincarnated. He's come back from the dead. That's what Herod Antipas believed himself, you remember, when he heard about Jesus. He says this of course must be John the Baptist risen from the dead. I take it haunting me. Of course that was not the case. Others said he's Elijah. Now you have to know a little bit about Jewish prophecy concerning the Messiah to understand that. Malachi 4, 5 says, Behold, I send you Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so, Jewish people who knew their Old Testament believed that Elijah would come again before the Messiah would come. And the Messiah would come closely upon His heels. That's why your Jewish friends, if they celebrate Passover, have an empty plate at the table. This is the plate for Elijah. They're praying that He shows up because if He shows up then the Messiah can't be far behind. Of course, uh, Luke chapter 1 declares that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And Jesus affirmed that John fulfilled Malachi 4.5. But then they said, some are saying he's one of the other prophets reincarnated. I expect the one he had in mind was Jeremiah. Because Jesus sort of resembles Jeremiah. Remember, Jeremiah spoke truth to power. He says, look, it's not going to go okay with you. You're, You're going to lose, and this city is going to be destroyed, But the people didn't believe him. They stopped their ears. They didn't want to hear those difficult things. And people didn't want to hear Jesus' difficult teaching. Um, And Jesus, of course, like Jeremiah, was emotional. He wept. And Jeremiah was known as the, the weeping prophet. Well, it's no different today, is my point. People today have all sorts of popular opinions about Jesus, not just individually, even religions hold. Different opinions about Jesus. Take the Muslims, for example. There are over 1.2 billion Muslims in the world, we are told. But in the Muslim tradition, Jesus is figures prominently. In fact, there are many mentions of Jesus in in the Muslim scriptures, but what they say about Jesus is that he's the second most important prophet there ever was. The first, of course, was Muhammad in, in their tradition. But that's not what the Bible says about Jesus. Well it's not just Muslims. Our Mormon friends have a different view of Jesus than than is biblical. What they teach is that Jesus is Jehovah God of the Old Testament. Different and distinct and most important for our purposes today a lower God than Elohim of the Old Testament. In fact they view Jesus as our older brother but we have the same potential to be God as much as He did. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches, is it? Well, what does the Bible teach? How does the Bible answer the question, who is Jesus? Well, let's turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And when you get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, which of course is the first verse of the New Testament, if your Bible is similar to mine, there's a blank page to your left between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, you'll find that the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. And the last chapter is Malachi 4, and the next to the last verse of Malachi 4 is verse 5, the one I just quoted, which says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, and he will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to the fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And so, the last revelation we have of the Old Covenant is the coming of a forerunner, and then we turn the page and we come to Matthew 1. And it says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew declares Jesus to be the Messiah. There's three points I want to make. The first is his office. His office is that of Messiah. He, of course, is prophet, priest, and king. But his designation here in Matthew 1.1 is he is the Christ Christ. Now Christ is a Greek word which is a translation of the Hebrew word Messiah which means anointed one. And Craig Blumberg who is a theologian says in his book that the universal expectation of Jewish people was that God would send a liberator. And so in the minds and hearts of Jewish people 2,000 years ago was that the Messiah was going to be first and foremost a liberator. A liberator is one who sets people free. Well, Jesus of course did come to seek and save the lost and set people free from the penalty and power of sin, but that's not really the sort of liberation most of them had in mind. Even Jesus' own inner circle had the idea for a long time that he was going to be an earthly king who would come and overthrow the shackles of the Roman oppressors. He would set up his kingdom in Jerusalem and they would be his generals and and aid to camp. And when that did not happen, Many people were very disappointed with Jesus, weren't they? Instead of riding into Jerusalem with an army, he rode in alone on the foal of a donkey, which should not have surprised anyone who knew their Old Testament because Isaiah clearly said that he was coming as a suffering servant. And Jesus, of course, was that. He was the suffering servant. But he was the anointed one, the chosen one of God, to be the one who would set his people free. Now... Second thing we see is not only His office, but but His relationship. We are speaking of Jesus. His relationship first of all with His Heavenly Father, and then His relationship with with man. Let's take His relationship with man first, because Jesus' favorite designation or title for Himself was not Messiah, it was not even Lord. His favorite designation listed over 80 times in the New Testament, He called Himself the Son of Man. He identified publicly and often with humanity. Now that's not to say he denied his deity, but he was embracing the fact that he had left the glories of heaven and taken on human life. This is what Paul says, doesn't he, in Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind or attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who did not consider his deities a thing to be grasped held on too tightly, but in some way that we have trouble talking about because we lack the vocabulary, he emptied himself of his glory and took on human flesh. And this is his relationship with humanity. He became one of us, the Son of Man. That's a term, by the way, for the Messiah taken from the Old Testament book of Daniel. But he was also the Son of God. In fact, that is what Peter says in Matthew chapter 16 of this same episode, Jesus said, who do people say that I am? Peter, speaking for the twelve, said, Thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Liberator, the Son of the Living God. Now I think that's very interesting because remember they had traveled 25 miles north into Gentile territory where there were false gods made out of plaster and stone and wood. These were anything but living. These were dead and vain gods. Peter perhaps was even looking at one of these false gods when he says, you are the son of the living God. Paul did the same thing. You remember the book of Acts when he was uh, teaching in Lystra. They tried to worship Paul. He said, no, we've come here to tell you about the living God as opposed to these pagan gods that they had been uh, worshiping. There are those though that deny that Jesus ever claimed to be God or the son of God. They say, well, that was something that was put upon him by his followers. It was part of the mythology that became Christianity after Jesus' death. Don't you believe that for a minute? Turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, the the scripture is explicit about why Jesus was was crucified. John chapter 5 verse 17, Jesus is ministering and the Pharisees are observing that. One of the things that made the Pharisees mad is that Jesus healed people on the Sabbath. Remember Jesus told them when they protested that, that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then he said, verse 17, John 5, He answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. No Pharisee would say Jesus didn't claim to be God. They knew exactly what he was claiming when he called God his Father. And uh, this is his relationship. He is the son of man, identifies with humanity in every way. By the way, it is just as heretical to deny the humanity of Jesus as it is to deny his deity. Both of those things are true. So that's his relationship. But then thirdly we see His affirmation, His affirmation. In Matthew chapter 16 we see the parallel text of Luke chapter 9 in a little more detail. In Matthew chapter 16 when Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, verse 17, And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now I find that very interesting because there are a couple of other places in the New Testament where people tried to worship men, either a prophet or an apostle. So when John the Baptist was on the scene there seemed to be a popular opinion that perhaps he was the Messiah. But John distanced himself from that theory, didn't he? In fact, when he saw Jesus coming... He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he said, I'm not worthy to unlatch his sandals. That's clearly that he's subordinate to Christ. In fact, the most famous thing he said in subordination to Christ was, He must increase and I must what? Decrease. And so John the Baptist, the second somebody started trying to worship him as the Messiah, said, No, 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 not me. We saw the same thing last week with Paul and Barnabas, didn't we? When they were in the city of Lystra they healed this lame man and rather than giving glory to Jesus the people tried to make sacrifices to Paul and they tore their clothes which was a sign of great anguish and sorrow and said, no, but we are men like you. We've come to tell you about the living God. But you don't find Jesus doing that. He didn't tear his clothes when they said, you are the Christ he congratulated them by the way that's what the word blessed means when you read the beatitudes in the new testament blessed are the poor in spirit read it this way to be congratulated are the poor in spirit we can read it this way to be congratulated are you Simon the son of Jonah because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you that is Peter it wasn't through your intellect it wasn't through your ability to reason your logical mind that you came to the conclusion, unlike the rest of these people out here who think I'm John the Baptist or Jeremiah or Elijah, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. And if God the Father reveals something to you, you can rest assured it's the truth. And when He revealed to Peter and the other apostles that Jesus was the Christ, this was a miracle work, I take it, of regeneration. And by the way, if you ever wonder why you are saved and someone else is a Buddhist or a Hindu, it's not because you figured it out. It's because of the grace of God in your life. He has opened your eyes. He has caused you to understand the truth. It was true of Peter. It was true of of believers in his day. It's true of every believer today. Now then, that leads us to our conclusion. I said this is the great confession The great confession was preceded though by a great question. There are many questions that Jesus asked His disciples in the New Testament, but they all boil down in my mind to two. Two great questions presented in the New Testament that I believe every person, every man, woman, boy, and girl must ultimately answer. Number one is the one we find here in Luke 9, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That's really what Jesus was asking when he said, Who do the people say that I am? He was getting to the real question, which was, What do you believe? Who do you say that I am? Well, when we ask people that question, by the way, people do, that's a question that is often presented on religious questionnaires. Who's Jesus? In fact, there's all sorts of documentaries and specials and articles and books written to attempt to answer the question, who is Jesus? Now, most of those questions assume the answer that he's not who he claimed to be. Right? Most people who write those books and, and put on these documentaries don't believe he's God, and they certainly don't believe he's the Son of God. He doesn't. They don't believe in his deity, so they have to say, "Who was he really?" is what they mean, and so they have to answer that question with something less than God, don't they? And so some of them say, "Well, he's just a myth, a legend, an ideal." that people who thought about uh, how life ought to be came up with this character and they called him Jesus and they told stories about him, but they were not true. Well, that's been disproven over and again. There's all sorts of evidence that there was a historical person named Jesus who walked in Galilee and in Judea 2000 years ago, so very few people hold to that. So if you can't hold to that, but you don't want to say Jesus is God, you've got to come up with something else. And so they'll usually say something like, he was a good man. You ever heard that? Now, I don't know how you can call someone a good man if he said he's God and he's not. Because if you say you're God and you're not, that makes you a liar, doesn't it? And we don't think liars are good. So that is inconsistent at best. But but the truth is Jesus is still a popular figure today as far as popularity goes. Now, I'm not saying most people are true Christians, I'm saying they are sympathetic to the historical figure called Jesus of Nazareth. If you ask most people in our culture, do you have a favorable or unfavorable view of Jesus, the vast, vast majority will say a favorable view. And then some will even go so far to say, well he was not just a good man, he was a prophet. He was sent from God. Remember 1.2 million Muslims believe this. But to say that Jesus was a prophet falls well short of reality. And it falls most importantly short of saving faith. The only correct answer to the question, who is Jesus, is the one that Peter offered. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is, he's exactly who he claimed to be. But then there's another question, because the Bible indicates that it's not enough to believe historical facts about Jesus. Now, those are necessary. You must believe he's who he claimed to be to be saved. But the second question we find is what will you do with him? Wasn't that the question that was first asked in the New Testament by Pilate? When Jesus uh, came before him in the middle of the night, accused by the Pharisees of crimes he did not commit. In fact, they couldn't even pinpoint a crime. When Pilate said, What did he do? they said, Well, we wouldn't bring him here if he wasn't a bad man. How dare you accuse us? But then Pilate examined him and couldn't find anything that he'd done. And so he asked the question rhetorically what shall we do with him? But, friends, that, that's not just a rhetorical question. That is a question for the ages. That is a question you must ask every day when your feet hit the floor and you look in the mirror what am I going to do with Jesus today? You say, well, I've answered the question, he's the Christ. Well, the question is, what now? How does that affect your life? What are you going to do with, with, with Jesus? Pilate recognized Jesus was innocent. That didn't mean He was saved. In fact, Pilate ultimately crucified Him. He rejected Jesus out of hand. But there are many more people that are a little different than Pilate in the world today. That is, they would never say they would want Jesus crucified, but they admire Him from afar. That is, they want to look at Jesus through the lens of history and say, yeah, that was a good guy. That's someone we ought to want our children to be like. But they stop short of bowing their knee to His Lordship. What I mean when I say they, they admire Him from afar is the reason they do is they recognize He's dangerous. And things that are dangerous, even though we may admire them, it's kind of like a, a zoo, Right? I love to go to the Fort Worth Zoo. But I like to admire the lions and tigers from afar, don't you? I don't want to be in the pen with them. And so when we get real close to Jesus, we recognize He's dangerous. See, He's not one of these gods that's made out of a stone and wood that we can make our sacrifices to and go about our life. He's a God that makes demands upon us. He says He's going to judge us one day. He says He wants all of us. He wants to to submit to Him with all of our heart, mind, and spirit. That's a dangerous God. And most people are unwilling to have that kind of dangerous God in their life. And so they just admire Him from afar. But then there's the right response. Remember we said the right answer to who is Jesus? He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, the right answer to the question, what shall you do with Jesus, is bow the knee. If He's who He claims to be, that means He's the Lord of the universe. If he's who he claims to be, he makes demands on your life and that you submit to his lordship. And how you do that is first of all, you repent of sins. That is, you turn from the path your own and turn towards Christ. And then you submit to him in, in every way. And to submit to him means to, to serve him. You give up control of your own life. You're no longer the captain of your own ship, master of your own destiny. You are a servant of of Christ, I will follow him wherever he leads. Before you say you want to do that, you, you should count the cost. I think one of the great tragedies of the evangelical church in the last 50 years is that we've stopped telling people to count the cost. We'll say, hey, are you lonely? Is your life unfulfilled? Bored? Come try Jesus. No. Friends, that's not the gospel. The gospel is you are born into this world a rebel and an enemy of God. And you're a sinner just as I am by nature and by choice. And if God doesn't intervene and open your blind eyes, you're going to stand before Him one day and give an account of your soul and you're going to be found lacking. And you're going to be cast out of His presence for all of eternity. But here's the good news. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. But Jesus says, look, if, if you're going to say, I want that, if you're going to say, I want to follow Jesus, you have to understand the implications of that. That's why the Bible says you must take up your cross, how often? Daily. And follow Him. See, the cross, friends, 2,000 years ago was not a necklace you wore around your neck or your earrings. It was not a, ornament you put on the wall to decorate your living room. The cross was an executioner's device. Jesus says if you're going to follow after me you have to die to yourself. Deny yourself. Take up the cross and follow him. But friends I want to say to you what Adrian Rogers said in a group that I was in 30 years ago. If I had a thousand lives I'd give them all to Jesus. He is worthy of whatever the cost. Amen? Whatever He calls you to do, it pales in comparison to the glory that will be Christ and those who are Christ in the day to come. Let's thank Him for that truth. Heavenly Father, Lord, we say with Peter, His great confession, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You alone have the words of life. and Lord, we've heard the word of life today. We, we've heard the plan of redemption the path of salvation so lord for every believer in this room i thank you for them they're my brothers and sisters in christ they've been born again redeemed adopted into your forever family but lord perhaps in a group this large there are some who yet to know you they have not repented they're still in their sins the invitation today is that whoever will call upon the name of the lord will be saved i pray you would grant faith and repentance to some in this room today Father, I pray for believers that every day when we get up and look in the mirror, we'll ask ourselves the question, what will we do with Jesus? Will we be quiet and lay low, or will we boldly proclaim the coming kingdom? Lord, I pray that we would be bold and courageous in our stand for Jesus, and we pray it in his name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast.